Hello and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I am Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement at San Francisco Ballet, and I am your host for To The Point, the audio program note you can listen to in your car, on BART, or on your walk to the theater. Today we're going to do a refresher course on Sleeping Beauty. Some of you probably listened to last year's To The Point episode on beauty, and if so, we're going to cover some of the same ground here. But... In the interest of transparency, that was our very first To The Point episode, and I think we can do a little bit better this time around. Today, we're going to talk a bit about the creation of Sleeping Beauty in 1890, hear from our music director and principal conductor, Martin West, about the music for this ballet, talk a little bit about the unique setting of our production and its story, and I'll also give you a few hints on what to look out for choreographically. And so on that note, let's get to the point. We'll start by setting the scene. For many people, the first thing they think about when they hear the words sleeping and beauty is the 1959 Disney film. And honestly, the ballet does share some music and some key plot points with the movie, but it also varies quite a bit. So let's do a quick plot recap before diving into more detail. Once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away, a baby princess named Aurora is born. Her parents throw a big party for her christening, and they trust their master of ceremonies to invite all the important people, namely a whole flock of fairies. They include the fairies of tenderness, generosity, serenity, playfulness, courage, and most importantly, the lilac fairy, whose gift is wisdom. But in a moment of oversight, the master of ceremonies forgets to invite the fairy of darkness, who shows up uninvited and curses the baby to one day prick her finger on a spindle and die. But the lilac fairy intercedes and proclaims that instead of dying, the princess will sleep for a hundred years. Just to be safe, however, the princess's father bans all spindles and needles from the kingdom. Fast forward 16 years, and the curtain opens on Act 1. Yes, all that plot a moment ago was from the prologue. It is now Aurora's 16th birthday, and she's told that she's now old enough to find a husband. She dances with four potential suitors in a very famous section of the ballet known as the Rose Adagio, but none of them seem quite up to par. As the celebration continues, a mysterious guest appears with a present for the princess. Turns out this gift is a spindle, and the mysterious woman is the fairy of darkness. Aurora pricks her finger on the spindle and collapses. Luckily, the lilac fairy intercedes once again and sends the whole court into an enchanted sleep. Act two opens another hundred years later. This is a serious time travel ballet, and we meet our leading man, Prince Desiree. He's out on a hunt, but sad and lonely because he doesn't have a wife. Luckily, the lilac fairy is a good meddler and reaches out to let him know about a particularly beautiful princess who just happens to be under a sleeping curse in an enchanted wood. The lilac fairy makes Aurora appear in a vision so that she and the prince can get to know each other, and they fall in love. The prince travels through the forest, climbs the castle, kisses the girl, and it's happily ever after. Or almost. We still have an act three, and if you listen to this podcast enough, you'll know that that's the wedding. The final act features guests like the diamond, sapphire, gold, and silver fairies, some characters from other fairy tales like Puss in Boots, the White Cat, the Bluebird, and Princess Florine, and a final wedding pot de And now that is officially a wrap. But ballets are always about more than just plot, and for ballet lovers, Sleeping Beauty might be the most iconic classical ballet, and for music lovers, it might be the most iconic classical ballet score. So why is that? 
Choreographed in Russia in 1890, this ballet was the very first collaboration between choreographer Marius Petipa and famed composer Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. In the 1890s, ballets were usually created in a very specific way. A librettist, sometimes the same person as the choreographer, sometimes not, would write a story, and then the choreographer would decide what kind of music and dances they would need to tell that story, and then the composer would work with strict directions from the choreographer to create the music. But Tchaikovsky wasn't normally a ballet composer, nor was he a normal ballet composer. Rather, he was a composer famous for his symphonies and for his operas, and so his process was a bit different. He worked closely with Petipa and with librettist Ivan Vsevolozhsky to create a piece of ballet music that was more symphonic in nature than ballets had traditionally been. I had a chance to sit down earlier this year with Martin West, our music director and principal conductor at one of our ballet talk events, to talk to him a little bit about this music. So let's hear what he has to say about it. And this is really one of the most iconic ballet scores. When you read about Sleeping Beauty, if you're reading like a dance history, everything will say, the most perfect ballet score ever written. That is like how people talk about this music. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think they're probably right. In terms, of, in terms of full length, but maybe, maybe Cinderella was, mm. is also that's perfect, mm -hmm. but that's a different, different thing. Um, if you take, so this was written in what, 1890, yes. was it? So if you take 40 years, 50 years before that was Adam writing mm -hmm. Giselle. Giselle, yeah. And up until that, we talked about uh, Minkus. Mm. All these composers, in those days, ballet tended to be secondary to the opera. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so often the opera would be on, and they'd have the ballet join intermissions to keep the, the people public interested. So the ballet was really just not that important. Mm -hmm. And... Um, So, most ballets tended to be just a, a series of dances with some sort of story added on top to kind of make it sort of cohesive to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you see these ballets, which are just like, the, you couldn't tell. If you didn't know what the story is, some of them, you'd have no idea. Because it's all the same. You know, this is core dances and solos and stuff like that. And, you know, and so there's no real storytelling. It's just it's a, with a background of story. And then um, Delib was probably the first great composer to write for ballet. Tchaikovsky then wrote Swan Lake, where he then, he just, he made the story the most important thing and tried to fit the model of the ballet into, um, into his vision, mm -hmm. so his story. So he, he didn't completely succeed. There's a lot of Swan Lake, which is saying diverts and stuff like that. <coughs> But he did, at least in the fourth act especially, in, in some ways in the second act, uh, and, and some ways in the first act, managed to take a, a whole and, be, and make an actual 40-minute, 30-minute period where there was some cohesiveness within the music, which really didn't happen before. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, so, and it was a, it was a you know, uh, Swan Lake was a bit of a, uh, um, wasn't a success. You know, people didn't, didn't like it to begin with. Um, and so, like a 15-year hiatus before it yeah, came back. Yeah, that's right. <coughs> and then, uh, but in the meantime, Tchaikovsky <coughs> was really the first truly great, well, apart from Deleuze, but really the truly first truly great composer who wrote for ballet. And in between writing Swan Lake, he'd, he'd written symphonies, some symphonies, a lot of opera. He had a lot of stagecraft. He knew about how to create atmosphere. He knew how to create time 
and a passing of time and the stillness of time when it needed to me, how to use all those, and he had all those things at his disposal. So when Sleeping Beauty was proposed to him, and uh, was it Petiver? Yeah. Who, who, who gave him There you go. Um, he, who gave him a very strict libretto. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had was able to go one step further than they did with Swan Lake, which was to create this even more cohesive thing. So even though there are dances, that, you know, the prologue has all those fairy dances, but they're there for a reason. They, mm-hmm. And that they are actually variations. They're, they're very tenuous, but the music is related to, to everything. So they have, it's, it's not just like one... 30-second piece of music followed by another 10, five-minute pieces, whatever. It's all one, one arch. And so it, he was able to not just have some symphonic work, but the, the whole <coughs> overarching thing. He used a great um, technique, which is he gave the, the, the two fairies, the bad fairy and the good fairy, their own little tune, mm-hmm. uh, which he brought back and, 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 and not just brought back, but t- developed in incredibly sophisticated ways so the music would intertwine and he had he was able to bring them together and when they were fighting they were able to he was able to change one um, an incredible bit where he changed from being an angry witch he, <coughs> when the, the scene goes to this in the score it says tout le monde est petitier the whole world turns to stone and this incredible monolith of music comes which is from the core sequence which is you, could, you, you wouldn't recognise it mm-hmm. if you didn't know and, uh, and he, he prefaces that with the build-up with the other music. So it's all symphonic. So he managed to create this incredible... The first, the first three acts, the prologue and the first two acts, is an incredible whole, like a symphony. Mm-hmm. And you could play those three acts as a symphony and, and, and be fine. The third act is interesting because that's completely separate. So it's almost to me like, um, musically speaking, it's just like a different world. He, he then went back into his old... old uh, uh, the old style, which is have a character dance, but uh, the nature of that act is such that, that every, there are characters, not mm-hmm. just you know people from Spain or whatever. They're, they're the real characters. So he was able they're to taken from the same um, the book. Book. Yeah. So he was able to create really interesting piece of music in their own right. So even though the the, 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 the symphonic nature of it finishes at the end of Act Two for me, the third act is this great, wonderful character dance. It's a real character. And uh, he was, t- he was towards, he was only 50, I guess, uh, towards the end of his life, but in the absolute prime of his uh, comp- composition and ability. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty perfect. Yeah. So that's a bit about the music, but what about the story and the dancing? You may have heard me say in there that there are characters from other fairy tales in this ballet. And you may have been thinking, what fairy tales, Jenny? Help me out there. So I mentioned earlier that creating a ballet in this period often involved a librettist, in this case, Ivan Vsevolozhsky, who wrote the story for the ballet. But Vsevolozhsky didn't just dream up the story of the Sleeping Beauty. He was inspired by the fairy tale as it appeared in Charles Perrault's book, Tales of Mother Goose. A retired bureaucrat during the reign of Louis XIV, Perrault assembled old French fables into a book for his children and, in so doing, invented the modern fairy tale. And, as I indicated, when Petipa, Tchaikovsky, and Vsevolozhsky decided to adapt Perrault's The Sleeping Beauty into a ballet in 1890, they didn't stop with just one fairy tale. They also chose to include characters from other stories as guests at Aurora and Desiree's wedding, giving the ballet a kind of cohesiveness often lacking in story ballets of the period. 
our version, choreographed by Helgi Thomason in 1990 to celebrate the bicentennial of the ballet's creation, features characters from three different fairy tales, Puss in Boots, who dances with the white cat, and the bluebird and his partner, the enchanted princess. The story of Puss in Boots is a fairly well-known one. A cat, given to a youngest son and insistent upon wearing boots, decides that he'll make his master's fortune. Through hard work and a bit of trickery, he arranges his master's marriage to a princess. Mission accomplished. The other two stories are more obscure and weren't, in fact, written by Parole, but rather by his contemporary, Madame Dolnoy. The white cat tells the story of a prince whose adventures are aided by a mysterious white cat who turns out to be an enchanted princess. Why she attends this wedding with Puss in Boots instead of with her prince is a mystery to me, at least. And the bluebird is the story of Princess Florine and King Charmant. Florine's stepsister's evil fairy godmother, try to do that relationship in dance, transforms Charmant into a bluebird and traps Florine in a tower where Charmant flies up to visit her. Ultimately, the villagers rebel, Princess Florine is saved, and she and Charmant get their happy ending. But no, you aren't going to get all that plot exposition in their dances in the third act. Instead, keep an eye out for the way the choreography takes the idea of what it might mean to move like a bird or like a cat and transposes that onto the human body, melding ballet technique with little animalistic quirks. And it wasn't just the fairy tales that Sievolushki and Petapa borrowed from Perol. It was the setting, too. The original creator set this ballet as taking place before and during the reign of Louis XIV. He was the king known for fostering the creation of ballet as a distinct art form. The prologue and the first act would take place a hundred years before his reign, the second and the third during it. Staging it this way in 19th century Russia could kind of be seen as a statement on the parts of the artist at hand. Ballet may have fallen asleep in Paris, but it's reawoken here in Russia. Even that the Russian court was the equivalent of Louis XIV's. They used this ballet as a political statement. And the ballet is often used this way. Um, it's Sleeping Beauty is in many ways a ballet about ballet and about ballet's place in the world. When the Royal Opera House in London reopened following World War II, they danced the Sleeping Beauty. Ballet in England may have slept during the war, but now both are alive and well and vibrant and dancing. And when Thomason choreographed his version here, five years after he took the helm of the company, there may have been a bit of a similar message embedded within it. Our version takes place not before and during the reign of Louis XIV in France, but rather before and during the reign of Peter the Great of Russia, the monarch who opened Russia's borders to the West, bringing in art and culture and, yes, ballet, from Europe to his hub in St. Petersburg. Was this ballet then a statement about San Francisco Ballet's awakening not as a regional company, but as one that belongs on the international stage, open to influences from Europe and beyond? I can't say for sure, but the company did tour to New York for the first time in 26 years that following year, to Paris for the first time in 1994, and finally to Moscow in 2012. So I would bet that any future historians of San Francisco Ballet may well read it in exactly this way. All right, and then finally, what should you be looking for in the dancing? Well, lots, but let's keep it pretty simple and go act by act. In the prologue, keep an eye out for how the fairies' movements relate to the gifts they're bestowing, especially the lilac fairy and the fairy of darkness. Notice how their movements, the one dancing classically, the other one mostly miming, contrast one another. And listen for how their music, each one has a light motif or kind of a repeated phrase, appeared throughout the ballet as um, sort of emblematic of good and evil. So that's the prologue. Act 
Act one is all about Aurora. You want to watch her first variation, what ballet people call solo dances, which is just a big ball of energy. She should seem like a thoroughbred exploding out of the gate. And then also keep an eye out for the Rose Adagio when she dances with each of her four suitors. You want to look for her balances as she moves from suitor to suitor. They should look secure and confident. Act two is a lot of story, but you'll want to look at how the sets and costumes change between act one and act two. We've moved forward 100 years in time, and so we've entered an entirely different era of fashion. You'll also want to look for the nymphs in the vision scene. This section is essentially a romantic era ballet in miniature, and this scene shows off the corps de ballet in ghostly unison. And finally, at the wedding, the big pas de deux is the big event. Coming at the end of a long ballet, especially for the ballerina dancing Aurora, this dance is hard, and it's her job to make it look easy. Notice the way some of the steps from the Rose Adagio return here, all grown up, and look for the fish dives, a pose that happens when Aurora seems to dive through the prince's arms and he catches her. These are always awe-inspiring and have become the thing to look for in Act 3, despite the fact that they weren't added into the ballet until the 1920s. And that's all, folks. Thanks for tuning in to Season 2 of To The Point, and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of this season's performances. And if you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe, and you'll get our episodes downloaded just as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We are at SF Ballet. We love to hear from you, and I say this every time, but it's true. Your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you for listening, and see you at the Opera House.